driving stuff to people's houses and finding customers online, acquiring customers online are hugely expensive propositions. And the economics are just different from running a store fleet. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's savviest merchants have figured out how to improve conversion rates by over 50% and average order value by up to 20%. What's their secret? Split it, a completely different way to think about buy now, pay later. Check out splitit.com forward slash backroom to see how Split It can help transform your e-commerce business. Hey everybody, on this episode of The Backroom with Retail Dive, Ben and I are talking about e-commerce, the sort of the sustainability and long-term profitability or profitability at all of e-commerce and direct-to-consumer e-commerce. Ben, I really like the story that you did about these brands and online retailers, just sort of how they behave as they seek scale. And as your headline said, customers love them, investors love them. But what did you learn about a lot of these brands as you kind of sifted through all the facts? It was kind of interesting to look at them all side by side. You know, we took a selection of online retail players, it not not comprehensive, but um, several that are that are pretty young and, you know, that have filed for IPOs in the past couple of years. So they've been around for several years, but it's only been until relatively recently that we've kind of had a window into their financial life, which looking at several of them together kind of gives us, um, you know, a broader picture into e-commerce. When you look at a, and, and this came up in conversations a, a lot, when you look at a traditional retail company, I mean, everyone has a digital retail business, Walmart, Target, Dick's, Barnes and Noble. I mean, you go down the line, everyone has a digital store. It's 2021 here. I, I think Burlington may have axed their online store not too long ago. But other than that, everyone has opened a, a retail store, just about an online store, just about. Yeah, everyone has an online store, but it's hard to get a look at the bottom line, even among publicly traded retailers, because they don't always break it out. And they, I mean, they rarely break out the bottom line of their e-commerce operations. And part of that, I think, is just because everything's so complex now with omnichannel. It might be even hard to separate your digital profitability from your from your store profitability, and there may not be a reason to to do so necessarily for reporting purposes. Here we have this this handful of young e-commerce companies that have gone public recently. You know, we looked at Farfetch, Real Real, ThreadUp, Wayfair, which is not young, but they're a very interesting case, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Stitch Fix and and a handful of others, Chewy's another one, and so you know we could look at their financials and uh, we worked with uh, Rapid Ratings, which they have this sort of proprietary score that they give companies. They have they have two metrics: one that looks at like the short term financial health, you know, es- essentially looking at like what is your what is your financial risk today, but they and they also have a measure of their sort of medium term 
financial health, which kind of looks at like the efficiency of the company, how much profit can they make off of their assets. It pulls together all these financial ratios and other algorithms, I assume, and, and spits out numbers um, to, to get a sense of like how, how healthy are these companies? And, you know, by and large, they, they're all fast growing. They're, you know, their, their sales growth is pretty phenomenal. Some of them had hiccups last year during the pandemic. Some of them did fantastically last year during the pandemic, uh, including Wayfair. But over longer term, their sales growth is excellent. They've been investing, you know, to reach scale, to build their customer base. But by and large, they are unprofitable. There's, there's really only two that we've looked, looked at that have been consistently profitable from their operations. And that was Stitch Fix and Etsy. Wayfair has turned an operating loss for most of its life. Yeah, I feel like they're sort of the poster child for unprofitable e-commerce yeah in a way um i mean they they posted an operating loss for every year of their reporting life up until last year with the pandemic they got a big boost from demand so so it raises some big questions you know how, how first of all how long can these companies go on making a loss like how long is too long are there market values to investors in, I mean, are they rational? Are they aligned with the fundamentals of the company? If everyone is betting that the losses that they're absorbing now will pay off later, well, when when is later? And when is later too late? <laughs> that makes sense. And, and then the even bigger question is for everybody in retail, for whether they're, they're specialists or traditional retailers, is e-commerce profitable? Can it be a profitable business? Or if as everyone is moving to digital, are these digital companies telling us that it's just not going to be as profitable as a business as traditional retail was? I mean, reading this story rang so many bells in my head because so much of it sort of slices into some of the reporting that I'm doing too. This idea, I, I think... As long as a retailer, usually an e-commerce retailer, can convince Wall Street that it's a tech company on, on a major level, then the concern among investors switches from profits to growth. So as long as you're a tech company, you can get away with a lot of patience on the part of your investors when it comes to profits as long as you can show that or can, again, be persuasive that this is all being done in the name of growth. And I, I feel like even though Amazon is definitely now a extremely profitable company compared to you know when it started out, it's almost 25 years now, a public company, but it's not altogether clear that their retail e-commerce operations are particularly profitable. And even though it's a more mature company and arguably the definer of e-commerce, you know, it's not the kind of company that you invest in, pay zero dividends, for example. So it plows its profits back into the company. Its investors are still buying into the growth argument. And I think that that's why a company like Stitch Fix, even though it's been, I don't think it's had an unprofitable year. 
I think last year was the first. I think they they had some issues with the pandemic, but they've been consistently profitable. So they've been consistently profitable, which isn't as you have you know mapped out, isn't always the story for DTC companies. But I think some analysts are a little bit nervous because the growth story isn't as clear. And if you are a tech company who is emphasizing tech and growth and potential, then you need, you know, it's almost flipped for them. They've got the profits, but do they have the growth? It's, I don't think anyone is saying they don't. I just think there are some questions popping up about how much of a runway they really have. So it's just definitely not a traditional retail discussion because old fashioned retail is you sell things and you make money from that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's troublesome for everybody else too, because as you said, they're judged by Wall Street as as tech companies on a growth path. And and that's you know, that's fair for, for new enterprises and, and if they're kind of new in a sector or they're doing something in a sector that's never quite been done before, that that's pretty fair. But if you're a traditional retailer and you're publicly traded and you sell in that product category, you're getting graded on a totally different scale. So as you're trying to build your digital business, you don't get to, you don't get to burn cash like your uh, upstart competitor might get to. You brought up Amazon to it. A lot of the analysts I talked to just brought up Amazon. I mean, and, and for obvious reasons, they kind of set the rules for everybody years ago, because as you, as you noted, they were unprofitable for a very long time. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but for for a long stretch of their existence, they were they burned money and, you know, investors went with it and there were skeptics, but investors held on and Jeff Bezos kind of taught the market to wait and it paid off spectacularly for for investors. I mean, if you you have money in, in Amazon at the time of its IPO in the late 90s and held on to it. I mean, it didn't. It would not take much money invested in Amazon stock to make you rich today if you still had it all. But um, it's about three thousand dollars a share right now. So it, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and but they became profitable. Which you said exactly. I I brought up with with a lot of people I talked with. You know, it. We don't even quite know how profitable Amazon is, and they do so many things besides just sell products online. The lesson I think for a lot of other digital players is it helps to have like a side hustle, (laughs) you know, it helps to be doing something beyond just selling something online. You might have valuable data and you might be able to monetize that somehow. You might have developed technology. You might have a marketplace. You might have services like ThreadUp does this. You might have services that you can sell to other businesses. So you might have a B2B business, you might have a, uh, or a market or, or some other valuable thing that you do besides just your online retail operations. Well, and those kinds of side hustles come in handy even when you're talking about traditional retail, because traditional retail has always been sort of a dicey, often margin, thin margin type of business. It's a hustle in itself. So yeah, if you have a steady business that sort of cushions the the vagaries in retail it it's nice the other interesting thing that this kind of had me thinking about is we talked so much at one point about 
how these kinds of companies were disruptors and they were finding sort of holes in the market and filling them. And a lot of times it had to do with convenience, which is always, again, been a, a selling point for a lot of retails. There's literally convenience stores, drugstores, grocery stores. You know, convenience is not a new idea in retail, but I think some players were realizing that convenience is not the only place to innovate. And Target is one retailer that comes to mind whenever I think about who didn't. It's not like they haven't been influenced by Amazon. Clearly they have. They have made all kinds of investments in e-commerce and, uh, you know, fulfillment and stuff like that. But Target also seemed to be operating on the, with the idea that it, there's innovation in some other aspects of retail that Amazon isn't necessarily influencing, like private labels and the condition and architecture and lighting in their stores that is a little bit more on the traditional retail side, but clearly had some room for innovation or upgrading on its own. Well, and Target did a, did a good job of sort of reframing convenience too, to mean coming to our store. <laughs> like, I mean, and, and their private label strategy feeds into that. You can come to our store and get everything. You can come to our store and get style. You can come to our store and get cool stuff for the house that you might find at a lot of other, other retailers. You don't have to go anywhere else. And you can order online and it'll just be walked over to your car while you're doing other things. But you're right. Retailers have to find other other ways to, to compete. And convenience is part of what makes it so expensive. But yeah, Amazon redefining convenience in terms of shipping, that form of convenience created incredible costs for Amazon and then everybody else as they tried to follow Amazon. So it, it helps to innovate yourself and to not let others sort of set the, the the rules and the parameters for you. Yeah, especially if maybe profits become, you know, sneak in as a concept that maybe investors do want, you know. One of the companies that is at the forefront of online convenience and whose investors don't mind the, the lack of profits is Wayfair. Again, last year was a, the first year that they had made any money off their operations probably in the company's entire life. They have been unprofitable going back through most of the last decade. Super convenient. They are one of, if not one of the top leaders of, of online furniture retail, loved by customers, but they just started making money and it took a huge bump from the pandemic to do that. So yeah, one of the big questions there is, is last year's profitability a sign that their model is legit, is sustainable. It works once you hit that scale of uh, $14 billion in sales or whatever they did last year, or or was it a fluke? And that's something we're kind of waiting to see. So I've heard Wayfair's CEO talk about this, and he believes that there is a lot of momentum and that consumers have basically discovered the value in their homes and are have plenty more to invest in their homes, have new homes to furnish, renovations that they want to furnish. And so far, actually, I think he's been 
proven right because that category keeps doing really well, even though theoretically the home office or the home study has been fixed up and the new couch has been gotten and the new television has been gotten. Also, theoretically, people are anxious to get out of the house and maybe don't you know, need yet another new couch. I mean, you're not going to get a new couch every year. <laughs> yeah, that's the rub. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that Wayfair has is a super sophisticated, from what I understand, they have a very sophisticated supply chain and fulfillment system that unlike Amazon, I don't think they have monetized it in the same way that Amazon has has monetized their sort of FBA fulfillment system. So I don't know if there's some opportunity there to kind of do that B2B business that you were talking about earlier. But Wayfair really is a fascinating company. Do you think they they could actually be an example? Like if they do get, I don't know, what would you call consistent profits? Two years in a row? Three? And at what point do you say, well, you know, Wayfair took this long to become profitable and stay profitable. So that is the general yardstick that we can use for e-commerce. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's any standard yet, which makes it that much harder to set expectations. Again, you can't really use Amazon as a standard because they, even within their North American e-commerce unit, they make money from advertising. They make money from fulfillment services. They make money through transactions on, on third-party sales. And then they make money from their own sales. And the cloud and the cloud services. Yeah. As, yeah. And then that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother ballgame. It's interesting about Wayfair. Again, even though they were profitable last year, their operating margin was pretty razor thin. If I did my math right, they need to show consistent profits, but they need to show even more profits eventually, I would think, for investors to, to have full confidence. You know, the other interesting thing about Wayfair is they are, for now, a pretty straightforward e-commerce company. As, as you noted, they, don't, they haven't monetized their fulfillment network. They're really pretty laser focused right now on selling furniture online. And you can see in Wayfair, because they break it out, where the costs come from, why it's so hard to make a profit in the world of e-commerce. Because in, in 2019, when they had a huge loss, they spent more than a billion dollars on fulfillment, and they spent more than a billion dollars on advertising. So driving stuff to people's houses and binding customers online, acquiring customers online are hugely expensive propositions. And the economics are just different from running a store fleet. And by the way, stores are actually a really effective and cost-effective way to acquire customers. And they have other sort of tangential advantages. They're a good place to, I mean, obviously sell things, but, but to sort of funnel if you have certain types of merchandise and you have different locations across the country, if something's doing better in the South or you have different seasons because we have such a big country, you can, you know, start your swim stuff earlier in Florida or stuff like that. And this question of, are you going to run a store can be a very sticky question for a lot of these brands. I mean, Wayfair had a store for a while there and closed it 
and now uh, is sort of saying someday we'll have one again. But the Real Real has stores. Stitch Fix tried a couple pop-ups and said, so far has said, you know, nope, stores are not for us. I mean, it's interesting to me that customer acquisition is such a long haul with so many expenses. And yet that proven efficient way of getting customers, the store is not on their list. Some of the retailers on our list did run stores like Casper and Casper had grant, you know, big ambitions. I think they're plotting around 200, but they're not even halfway to that number yet. Others don't. It is interesting. It's not something you just want to jump into. And, and especially if you've spent your entire life as, as an e-commerce retailer, it's a totally different business, really running stores. I mean, we've kind of seen that with Amazon too. It acquired Whole Foods, which everyone thought would be its grand entry into brick and mortar, and it would be off to the races from there. But Amazon's footprint is relatively modest so far. And part of that, I would imagine, is just the sheer difficulty of learning physical retail. It is a whole other business with all sorts of different skill sets you, you have to learn. I feel like that's been pretty clear. If you're familiar with Whole Foods pre-Amazon and by now with a few years as an Amazon company, it's noticeably a different grocery store. And these days, especially with the pandemic, but even before that, just with the rise of online grocery orders, a lot of Whole Foods stores have almost turned into you know, distribution centers, which is a fort of Amazon's, but that's not what a grocery store is supposed to be. So now we're hearing a lot of grumbling, you know, that customers are competing with the pickers at the Whole Foods stores for the best apple and the bunch and stuff like that. You know, you don't want your customers to feel like they have to race your own employees. Although a lot of retailers are, are probably going to face that same conundrum as they work with Instacart or do uh, ship from store. And this kind of goes back, though, to is anyone ever going to figure out the margins on that? Because grocery, I think, has got the thinnest margins of them all. So unless you charge people for you know the delivery from the grocery store, I don't know how you really make it. So post-pandemic, will that fade a little or will we see more expensive services, you know, it seems like kind of a premium service. It seems logical that you'd kind of pay a pretty penny for regular grocery delivery. But it's, I think, like a lot of things in e-commerce, the convenience play has been emphasized. And I think there's been a lot of the cost sort of, even when people do have to pay a little bit of money, I think a lot of the cost is being absorbed by the players and not by the customers. Every time profitability seems to catch up with sort of the latest imperative for, for serving your customers, whether it's shipping from stores, two-day delivery, first-day delivery. <laughs> and every time profitability, people figure out how to do this and not or make money or not lose money, the game changes again. And <laughs> someone comes along to disrupt and absorbs, you know, absorbs losses because they're the latest thing or it's Amazon and that's how they've, managed to do it this this entire time and then the the game changes and everyone has to start over from from square one i think it was the new york times just recently had a story that said you know all these e-commerce companies that have subsidized uber rides and airbnb and 
some of these premium services that have actually not been that expensive are starting to be less cheap. And as some of these companies sort of respond to the need to make a profit, prices are going up for some of these services. And so that willingness to sort of go all out to get that ramp, you know, of that growth ramp and pay whatever it costs to acquire customers. So far, I think these retailers have a set of investors that are buying into that story, but I don't know that, you know, it's going to last forever. I mean, investors kind of set the timeline and the rules again. I mean, you start off with your venture capitalists who are there to sort of give you money to burn and are looking for growth. These days, it hasn't always been that way, but these days you don't need to be profitable when you go public, when you file an IPO. So you file IPO and the money changes hands, the venture capitalists got paid out and you know public investors are now willing to absorb losses for for a time cuz they they have bought into a to a growth story as well. And and, and again, yeah, we've seen this well beyond retail. We you mentioned the rideshare companies, you know, a lot of tech companies you know follow the same story. And so you have an, another few years to to burn money and then but yeah, the big question is when <laughs> when when does the music stop? When does the music stop? And I'm interested in that even for Amazon. I'm sure it's a long-term story because Amazon is very innovative and is always finding new areas of business to sort of explode into major lines of business for them. But at some point, there's got to be some kind of natural plateau where Amazon is going to look like sort of Walmart does now, where it's a huge money-making company whose investors expect to get dividends because the growth story isn't really the story anymore. It's not like not growing exponentially is a bad thing. You, you have to grow to some extent, but just making good money in your line of work is another completely legitimate way to run a business. And at some point, even Amazon is going to turn into that company. And as that happens, if that happens, we'll definitely be there to report on it. For now, that's all the time we have. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.